At this time, the children are dismissed for children's church. So children, you guys can go on. The rest of us were in John chapter 3. It is probably the most known verse in all of the New Testament, perhaps even all of Scripture. We're not going to just focus on John 3.16. We'll look at John 3.16 in its context. We're going to attempt, attempt today to actually work through John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. It's a tall order. When I went to print my sermon, I realized it was 60 pages. That's okay. You know, you guys don't have anything to do today, so you're fine. So here's, here's where we are. John chapter 3. Now, one of the things that happens when we get to a familiar passage of Scripture is that we get um, accustomed to hearing it, but I want us to hear it in the midst of the context, and I want it to grip our souls so that we actually understand what is being said to Nicodemus, what is being said to this, this Pharisee, this leader of the Sanhedrin, this well-educated man, because really, he is confused, confused greatly about what Jesus says, and, and we'll get into that. But um, as we read the Word of God, Again, we, we pray that the Word of God would do a work in us so that we would believe all the more. So here, the word of the Lord from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who, is, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, again, this is a, a well-known passage. As you come to John chapter 3, you're looking at it, and, and what you hear is this idea of new birth. The, um, 
The poet laureate, um, Alfred Lord Tennyson, once said, Oh, for a man to rise in me, that the man I am might cease to be. Because he knows the depravity of his heart and that there needs to be a new man that comes. Now, what's interesting about this is I want you to think about this. Jesus either answers people before they can ask a question, or he answers their question with an answer to a greater question. So Jesus does this, and he does this throughout the gospel's account, right? Somebody comes to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, I just want to have a conversation. And he immediately answers them, either in a way that they had no idea, he answers a greater question, or he just answers with a question. As a matter of fact, it's almost as if uh, it would seem like Jesus was the originator of the show Jeopardy. Because he says, you, you must be born again. Uh, what is, um, I'm not born again? You know, what is, I am, uh, just, you know, I, I have no hope except being born again. Yeah, it would seem like Jesus gives us an answer and we have to work backward to figure out the question that goes along with it. So, so here he is, you know, in John chapter three, we notice that he's, he's really done two different things, two significant things in the gospel of John. And again, John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you might know and that by knowing Jesus, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for everything that is written in the gospel of John. And we know up to this point that Jesus has really done two uh, significant things. The first of which is he turned water into wine, he took the shame from the bridegroom, and he gave him a double portion. That's what he does in the midst of his gospel. He takes away our shame and guilt, and he gives us a double portion in his name. And then secondly, last week we talked about how he uh, went from a party to he went to anger, and how he cleared out the temple, and clearing out the temple because he was passionate and zealous for his father's house, for the worship of, of you know, his father. And then this week, we have Nicodemus. So Nicodemus comes to him. And Nicodemus, I want you to think about this, Nicodemus of Jerusalem, he was a respected figure within the city. This man, uh, he was a Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that he was um, well-educated. It meant that he was powerful within Jerusalem, that when the city would swell up to two and a half million people at times of Passover, that he would be one that people would recognize and they would say, hey, there's Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. He had high moral values. He had been taught by great teachers. He had probably memorized the majority of the Old Testament. And if not the majority of the Old Testament, he had probably memorized the, at least the first five books, you know, the, the, the Torah. So he's well-educated, he's well-respected, and yet he comes to Jesus at night. And he comes to Jesus at night. As a matter of fact, let me, let me um, say this too. It also says later on, like, are you the teacher of Israel? You know, in verse 10, it says, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? There's something that would say, like, he might have been uh, admired by his contemporaries as being maybe like the outstanding teacher or one of the outstanding teachers in Israel, all of Israel. And yet... He comes to Jesus at night. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him. Now I think, and, and commentators would agree, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he's fearful of losing all that he has acquired through his life. If he has seen with Jesus this, this man who made a, a whip and turned over tables and, 
and, and done these things, then he might be associated with him. And, and I can't be too sure that Jesus really is the Messiah or if he's the one who's promised or just a prophet or if he's even a good guy at all. So let me go at night because I'm fearful of what other people will say. I think that's also why Jesus actually talks about the darkness when you look at verse 19 and 20 of this particular passage. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He's, Jesus is essentially saying, Nicodemus, you came at night. Are your deeds evil? Are you wicked like the rest of the world? But, but notice that Nicodemus, in, in a positive way, comes to Jesus. And again, there's nobody else coming to Jesus at this point. So Nicodemus has some courage, has some curiosity, and he comes to Jesus and he asks this question. He says, Rabbi, which is a, a term of respect and honor. So again, this man who is respected within Jerusalem actually comes to Jesus and calls Jesus Rabbi. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, that's sort of an introduction. You're like, Rabbi, you're like, I'm going to lift you up. And we know that you've come from God and you do these signs. So, so talk to me about these things. And I mean, Jesus smacks Nicodemus right. I mean, it's, it's like he, he, he just, I, I can't, he smacks him across the face almost. Look at what he says. And Jesus, again, he's not really asking a question, but in verse three, he says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly. And that truly, truly is the Greek uh, amen, amen. We get the word amen, amen, right? Amen, amen. When you say amen at the end of a prayer, you're saying verily, truly, I agree with this. When Jesus is using it right here and he says truly, truly, and he does it two different times within this section of scripture, he's saying truly, truly, what I'm going to tell you is gospel truth. Don't think that what I'm saying, I'm not beating around the bush, but here it is. And he says this to, to Nicodemus, this ruler, this exalted one. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, think about this. Nicodemus has spent his entire life studying the Old Testament. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he has ascended to a level of spiritual maturity that few people in Jerusalem would ever get to. I mean, he is at the height of, of spiritual maturity and, and power and honor. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So you see, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is humbling Nicodemus. He's humbling him in order to save him. That is often the case that we must be conscious of our own ignorance and need for a savior. And Nicodemus responds. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And again, you know, talking about being born again, that's, that's new terms that Nicodemus is saying, like, this doesn't make any sense at all. What are you talking about? You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that most women do not want the reverse of childbirth occurring, you know, with their grown children, Right? It was bad enough when they were little and cute, but now they're not little and cute anymore, and there's no way. And so Nicodemus, just, he's just confused, right? 
And so it's obvious that Nicodemus is not following what Jesus is saying. So Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, seeing the kingdom of God, being a part of the family of God, and he uses these uh, images. And so he uses a series of metaphors to describe this new birth, this new birth. Again, Jesus is talking, you know, in the early parts of John, he talks about new wine. He talks about um, the new temple. He will now talk about new birth. He will now talk about new worship in John chapter 4 when we see the woman at the well. And so there's this newness that he's bringing. And he says to um, Nicodemus, he goes, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, the first thing he says is, born of water and the Spirit. And I'm here to tell you that that idea of water and the Spirit has been disputed by commentators. And so here's what I believe that he's talking about. This makes the most sense to me as I read this. The idea of water and the Spirit, I think, is an allusion back to Ezekiel chapter 36, when we are sprinkled clean, that we are cleansed from our sin, and then the Spirit comes and takes out a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. So I think there's an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 36, and then I think that there's also an allusion, Ezekiel chapter 36 flows into Ezekiel 37, which is the valley of dry bones. Some of you have heard it, you know, them bones, them bones, you know, where God actually uh, puts flesh on the bones, and, and, you know, and these bones now walk. So this, what is dead is now alive, and I think that's the allusion to the new birth that he's giving. And Jesus is saying, you've been studying the Old Testament your entire life, and you don't get this? You don't understand what's going on? And what he's saying is, but you must be born again because you cannot see the kingdom and you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. I think there's also an aspect of the born of the water and the spirit, which could be a natural birth as well as a spiritual birth. And I've heard it said that if you are born again twice, you will only experience one death. But if you're only born once physically, then you'll experience two deaths. A death at the end of your life and then a death that is eternal for the rest of the world or for the rest of eternity. So I think that that's what Jesus is saying and he's explaining this to Nicodemus in such a way that he can understand it. But it's a hard saying. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he goes into leaving the birth analogy, and he talks about now the idea of wind, right? He talks about wind. It is like the wind. You don't know where it originates, but you see its results. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit, And so again, what Jesus is saying, again, to this well-respected religious teacher is this, is that you cannot see the kingdom and you certainly cannot enter the kingdom unless you're born again. And he, again, equates it to the idea of a wind. You don't know where it originates, but the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what he's saying there is this. He's saying that if you are born again, 
there will be a change in your life. He's essentially saying that we cannot understand, we cannot understand the wind or where it comes from, but we see the effects of wind, right? I mean, we know that in Kansas, right? Like tornadoes, hurricanes, those kind of things. You don't necessarily know where the wind comes from, but you see the aftermath of what happens in the wind. Now, in the same way, he's saying that when the Spirit of God enters into a person and causes them to be born again and believes in Jesus, that there is something, you know, transforming that occurs. You know, like, and, and J.C. Ryle says these things about those who are born again. He goes, this, are you born again? J.C. Ryle, who's a hero of mine, he says, are you born again? This is one of life's most important questions. Jesus said, expect, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is not enough to reply, I belong to the church. I suppose I'm a Christian. Thousands of nominal Christians show none of the signs of being born again, which the scriptures have given us many listed in the first epistle of John. But he, he lists out these things in the midst of being born again. Again, the results of being born again, sometimes it's hard to know when you're born again, right? If I were to ask you, you know, those who have come to faith in Christ, when were you born again? You might go, I'm not sure. I think it might have been. And, but you see the effects in your life. You see the transforming power of grace in your life so that, for example, like you don't want to sin anymore. You know, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. That's 1 John 3, 9. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. What it means is that you have a, a heart inclination. Not that we're going to you know, remove sin from our lives, but that you hate what God hates and you love what God loves. And you recognize that you're a sinner and you want to put it to death. You recognize that you are at war within yourself and you want to stop sinning as much as you can. That's a that's a sensitive heart. That's a heart that has been transformed by the power of God. I mean, I've met guys before who were just, you know, vulgar individuals, right? I mean, profane. And the Spirit of God begins to work in them. And you know what happens? Their language is cleaned up. Now, not always. But you begin to see this transforming power occur. You begin to, to see words of praise rather than words of of profanity. Or the other thing that J.C. Ryle says is that you believe in Christ. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You know, if you have been born again, then you believe in Jesus. A man who is born again or regenerated believes that Jesus Christ is the only Savior who can pardon his soul, that he is the divine person appointed by God the Father for this very purpose. And he has confidence in Jesus. He may have fears and doubts. He may sometimes tell you that he feels as if he had no faith at all, but ask him if he is willing to trust in anything instead of Christ and see what he will say. Ask him if he will rest his hope of eternal life on his own goodness, in his own works, his prayers, his minister or his church, and listen to his reply. He only trusts in Jesus. The third thing that happens when somebody is born again is that they, they want to practice righteousness. We want to pursue that which is good. We want to read our Bibles. We want to pray. We want to help others. We want to tell others. We want to witness and worship as a child of God. That's what happens when we're, we're born again. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson uh, comments on this. He says, uh, when there was a man in his church that came to faith, and when he came to faith, one of the first things he said was, you know, it seems like the music just got a lot better. And the prayers are much more meaningful. 
And my goodness, the pastor has gotten much better as well because the Spirit of God is working inside of him. Now, I'm not saying if you don't like my sermons, you're not born again. But maybe. <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe, okay? Just keeping that, okay, so. But I'm not saying that, all right. So, the other thing that happens in the midst of this is when you are born of God, you want to love others the way that Christ loved you is that your heart is opened up so that you actually want to care about other people, maybe to the point that you actually care more about others than you do about yourself. That you long for them to know Jesus. That you want to help your brothers and sisters endure, to pray for, to care for. A man who is born again has a special love for all true disciples of Christ. Like his Father in heaven, he loves all men with a, a great general love, but he has a special love for those who are part of the family of God. You know, there's this pursuit of holiness. There's an overcoming of the world that, that Ryle talks about. As a matter of fact, um, when we think about this new birth you know, idea, that when you are born again, you will see the effects of the new birth within your life, and everybody around you will go, something's different. Something's different. I don't know where the wind came from, but it has carried this person along to a new life. George Whitfield, a preacher in the Reformation time, approximately the, of the Great Awakening, he preached, they say, over 3,000 sermons on the theme of, you must be born again. 3,000 sermons! And when someone asked him why he preached so many sermons on the theme, you must be born again, and his answer was, because you must be born again. <laughs> he goes, because I want you to see the kingdom of God, but not just see it, I want you to enter into it. Because when you enter into the kingdom of God, where there will be no more sin or frustration, there will be joy that is you know, in heaven that will be immeasurable. Now, at this point, Nicodemus, again, this well-educated man, we see this in verse 9, he is bewildered, just completely bewildered. He doesn't know what to say, and so he says this, Nicodemus said to him, how can this, these things be? Or how can this be true? And Jesus answered him, and again, this is a humbling thing for Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You've been reading the Old Testament. You've memorized and memorized and taught others, and you don't get this? I think what he's doing, again, he's trying to, to, to tear him down so that he can build him anew, right? You see, and the idea of new birth is that it's not that we need to be renovated. It's that we need to be torn down and built anew for a new birth. John Calvin said that this claim that we must be born again reveals there is nothing in us that is not defective. In effect, he's saying you don't need a makeover. You need a completely new birth. You've got to start all over again. It requires a totally new kind of life than the one you have now. This is a complete reorientation. 
It's really something you can liken to a physical birth because it's an emergence from darkness into light. The point here is that being born from above is a whole new radical experience. And he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't get it? And he, again, in verse 11, he uses this term, amen, amen, truly, truly. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Essentially, what Jesus is saying there is that you are the most you know, scholarly man alive and you don't know what I know. And he says this in a way that, you know, I've told you these earthly things and you do not believe. I, I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now that is significant. The Son of Man, that is a, a term used by Jesus of himself over and over again. This particular reference is coming from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And this is what he's, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 say. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what Jesus is saying is, you know, you need to trust in the Son of Man. He's actually saying, I am the Son of Man. This one that Daniel prophesied about in Daniel chapter 7, that's me. And he goes on to say this, you know, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, we read that earlier from Numbers chapter 21. And we see this picture, again, you know, he talks about this new birth. He talks about the wind that would come, this idea of regeneration. And then he brings it back to Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21. And he goes, let's talk about Numbers 21, Nicodemus. You've read it, you know it. Let's discuss this particular uh, section. Again, this is in the wilderness wanderings of the people of God. And, and what we find is that in the midst of this wilderness wanderings, the people have prayed for deliverance in Exodus, and God had heard their prayers. He sent the prophet Moses to deliver his people out of slavery, out of bondage of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he was leading them to the promised land. Well, in the midst of leading them to his promised land, we find that the people grumble and complain. And we, we can't understand that at all, right? We don't have any of those problems, right? How many of us have prayed for things, and then when we receive those things, we actually complain about those things in the midst of God's good gifts? Let me give you an example, just real briefly. How many of you have prayed for children? And how many of you have, have been blessed by God to have these children, and then you complain about these blessings of children. Anybody? Anybody at all? I know there's a couple of you, right? I mean, you're thinking like, Lord, I prayed for children, but not these children. <laughs> this, wasn't who I, this wasn't what I prayed for. 
Like I prayed for some obedient children that were quiet players who were really, really good at math, you know, and beyond me even, you know, who would take care of me in my old age. Like I, all of a sudden I get this. So, like, so we understand this, right? We pray for something, we get it, we complain about it. And so in the midst of that, what we find is that Numbers 21 happens. So the people are complaining about their food, saying we don't have any food, even though God was providing food for them every day in manna. And they're like, well, I don't like the food that you get. I mean, we do hear that from our kids too. Like, there's nothing to eat. You got a pantry full of food here, but there's nothing to eat, right? Yeah, but there's nothing I want to eat, right? I mean, like, so anyway, um, I digress. So Numbers chapter 21 says this. So then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned against we have, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may, he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, scholars believe that the serpents that they're designated here are called fiery serpents because when somebody was bitten, they, they would have a burning fever. And if that burning fever was not checked, it would be brought to death. This is a picture that is one of both horror and glory. It is horrible in that the Israelites were beset by a horde of venomous snakes, so that many, so many that the people could not escape. And as a result, their bodies were inflamed. Now, here's where we see this. This is what Jesus is doing. He's tying it all together. The snakes in this particular passage are symbolic of sin. In fact, the perfect symbol of sin, because it was a serpent that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, thereby bringing sin into the world, our very natures have been polluted. God says there's no one righteous, not even one. So the the serpents represent sin. And so what does sin happen? Sin comes in, then we see the likeness, um, we see that this sin, uh, this serpent infects everybody. So it will bite everybody, and in the midst of being bitten, you will be poisoned, and there's poison running throughout your veins, right? And you're going to die unless God intervenes. So that's where we are. This is a representation of sin. I mean, I think that's a really apt representation of sin, because sin is a poison within us. We cannot get it out of us. And then we see the likeness of a serpent lifted up on a pole. It is significant that Moses elected not to use an actual serpent. The symbolism would not have been so exact and perfect if he had. Our Lord became sin or a serpent for us. You see, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 22, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. So Jesus becomes sin for us. And that's what he's trying to explain to Nicodemus. That's what he's trying to get him to understand. In, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, within all the animal realm, from which to choose, God chose the perfect symbol, the serpent. Our Lord on the cross took the sins of the world upon himself as symbolized by the writhing serpent. Now, the other thing that's significant about this is how did the people, how did the people in the Old Testament Israelite days of Numbers chapter 21, 
What did they have to do in order to no longer have the poison affect them? They had to look up and see the serpent. In the same way, what Jesus is saying is, one day you will look upon the cross. And when you look upon the cross, you will know that I have become sin for you and that all you have to do is trust and believe and look upon the cross. To look upon Jesus to know that you are saved from the poison of your own sinfulness. And that's why, you know, it's, it's, we preach under the shadow of the cross, the empty cross. And then from there, we get into the most significant passage of Scripture that we've ever seen. So after he says, so, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this Son of Man, who has ascended into heaven and descended down to earth, who I am, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, similar to that, that serpent on Moses' you know, staff or pole, and that by looking at this person, you will be saved from the poison of sin. We see this. And then he goes on to say in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, that's the the summation of it. Because Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How can I see? How can I enter? And Jesus says, in the midst of your own sinfulness, in in the midst of being poisoned by your own sin, the Lord God of heaven, with great love, has sent his Son. For he loved you so much that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a story of uh, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was um, a famous evangelist from Chicago. And D.L. Moody says that um, early in his ministry, he had gone to England, and while there, he had met a young minister by the name of Henry Morehouse. And in their conversation, Morehouse said to Moody, I'm thinking of going to America. And Moody responded, well, if you should ever get to Chicago, come down to my church, and I will give you a chance to preach. Now, Moody really did not mean that. He realized that after he said it, and he, and he said it, and that he hoped this man did not come to America because he had never heard him preach. Sometime later, Moody received a telegram that read, just arrived in New York, will be in Chicago on Sunday, Morehouse. And Moody did not know what to do. He had promised the man his pulpit, but he had never heard him preach. So after discussing the matter with his best counselor, his wife, and with the church leaders, he decided to allow him to preach one time. Then, if he did okay, he could preach again. Moody had to go out of town, and Morehouse came. And after the week was over, Moody returned and asked his wife, how did the young preacher do? His wife responded, he is a better preacher than you are. (laughs) He is telling sinners that God loves them. You must go hear him. Moody said, what? He's telling sinners that God loves them? That's not true. She said, well, he's been preaching on John 3.16 all week long. Moody made haste to get down to the church that night. And Morehouse stood in the pulpit and began by saying, I have been hunting for a text all week, and I have not been able to find a better one than John 3.16, so I will just talk about it once more. Later, D.L. Moody testified that on that night, he saw the greatness of the love of God as he had never seen it before. You see, when we think about the gospel of grace and the gospel of forgiveness, it is one where 
God loves us and that Jesus on the cross took upon himself all of our sins. And as he takes upon all of our sins, the righteous wrath of God befalls all of our sins. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's the truth of the scriptures. You know, if I were going to say it again, I'd say verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And because we're sinners, we we must pay the penalty for our sins. Either we pay the penalty or Jesus pays the penalty. That's it. There's only two answers. Look, it's a Scantron test and it's A or B. That's what it comes down to, right? Either you're going to pay the penalty for your sins or Jesus is going to pay the penalty for your sins. And you are born again by believing in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, by realizing that there is no salvation apart from Jesus, that you are sinful And that the poison, you know, of of your own sinfulness that runs through your veins, the only way that it can be extracted and you could be healed is through looking upon Jesus and trusting and believing in him. Now, if that is true and that you trust and believe, then you will be born again. Because no one that comes to the Father does Jesus push away. Jesus is always there to welcome us in. Now, there's some people that would look at this and go, this is a bunch of rubbish, right? This doesn't make any sense to me. And yet the call of the gospel is upon us to trust and believe. And I know that, you know, there are many of you who have trusted and believed in Jesus. And you can probably look at a, a time in your life where you've seen the effects of the Spirit of God changing you to one where worship became a delight, where the things of God and the people of God became things that you loved. And there's probably other people in the midst of our church who have not trusted and believed in Jesus. And there may be even people who are thinking, you know what, I, I sort of feel like I need to, but I don't know what to do. Here's all you have to do to trust and believe. Just pray. Pray, Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, welcome me into your kingdom. I'm a sinner and I need you. That's all you have to do. If you've never done that before, I would welcome you to come up front after the worship service and find an elder and say, help me. If if you're confused about that, come find me or an elder and we can talk about it some more. The thing about it is that we believe that the the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is powerful. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Again, as we think about our belief, let me close with this story. Um, speaking about being born again, there was a, a man, one man who was born again is a man named Tom Pompania. And his grandfather was one of the original mobsters who brought the mafia to America from Sicily. Tom's upbringing was savage, and at age 10, he vowed that he would never shed another tear. 
He grew up as a thief, an extortionist, and a murderer. His heart was so cold that even hardened criminals found it hard to look into his eyes, seeing nothing there but death. But God began to speak to Tom's heart, though he tried not to listen. He felt convicted about his many evil deeds, but wanting to rob God of the chance to punish him with death, he put a gun to his own head and was about to pull the trigger. Just then the phone rang. It was a man he had met who kept inviting him to church. Just to prove that God was wrong, he put down the gun and agreed to attend the man's church. When the service was over, the minister greeted him at the back door. He said, I have something I want to say to you, but I don't want to offend you. The eyes are the window of the soul, he said to Tom. When you first came in here, I looked into your eyes, and all I could see was a little boy crying, wanting to be loved. The pastor had exposed Tom's most painful secret, so he went back that night to murder him. But to his amazement, he could not go through with it. Instead, he talked with the minister who asked him whether he knew Jesus And he told Tom that he needed to be born again. Tom just laughed. Pastor, he said, if these people in this church found out who I was, they'd throw both of us out of here. I'm probably the biggest sinner you'll ever see if you live to be a million years old. These people don't want me. I'm a sinner. He went on to recount his crimes, and before he knew it, he found himself kneeling on the ground, confessing his sins to God and opening the door of his heart to let Jesus in. He said, I found Jesus, and I've been searching for him all my life, and now that I have him, I'm not letting him go. Tom Pompania went on to become a prison evangelist, his life changed by God's forgiveness and love in Jesus. He was born again. You know, that is the miracle of the new birth. And my prayer is that we would all experience the miracle of the new birth, to trust and believe in Jesus alone. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we come to you, I pray, Lord, that we would, we would love you and that, Father, that we would understand that we are born again through hope and belief and trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Father, if there are those here tonight or today who do not believe, I pray, Lord, that you would take out their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Father, for those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, I pray, Lord, that we would walk as becomes followers of Jesus. Lord, help us. Lord, save us. Father, might we be born again to a new life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.